Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. When he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that he was no longer, there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door, and he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through the roof, they let him uh, down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up, take your mat, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. The Word of God. Please be seated. Such a great story as we start off our sermon series called Question Mark, the questions Jesus asked in the Gospel of Mark. On average, a four-year-old asks 437 questions a day. Amen? No amen to that. Those of us who are parents uh, are familiar with this. Are there any here that have uh, four-year-olds with us today? Yes, God bless you. 437 questions a day. In fact, if you count that up, a study uh, showed that between the ages of two and five, a kid will ask about 40,000 questions to a parent. Joan Vanessa, bless you as well. Because the more you have, the more those questions are. Oh, and then, thankfully, by the age of five, we send them to school so the teachers can deal with it, right? And then the interesting thing happens, as Sir Ken Robinson says, do schools kill creativity? Often we ask our kids not to ask questions anymore. But that's a discussion for a different day. I shouldn't have mentioned that. Good education encourages questions. 40,000 questions should be celebrated, except in (laughs) four-year-olds. No. Questions is a part of our everyday lives, and Jesus in the Gospels asked a lot of questions. In fact, somebody counted it up that Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, asked about 339 questions. Now, many questions are asked to Jesus by people in uh, the books, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Many more than Jesus asked, but Jesus often responds to the questions that comes his way with another question. Rather than answering a question directly, Jesus would often respond with a question. I'm gonna ask Pastor Ben and Pastor Bev to come to the front quickly. 
How many of you have played the question game? You can only ask questions as you interact with each other. Pastor Ben, have you played this game before? Pastor Ben has never played this game before. Is your mic on? Red. Okay. Pastor Bev. Can I play this game? Uh, the, mic, the, the, the mics are not on. Brown and red. There we go. Check, thank check, you, thank check, you, thank check. you, thank you. Uh, okay. I have played this game a lot. <laughs> so, Pastor Bev, if you don't know it, is part of improv clubs, and she's done improv for many, many, many years, over 10 years. So, oh. she is the improv pro, and Ben has not played this game before. Yeah, sometimes my life feels like improv. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You're not wrong. Yep. <laughs> so, what we will do, Ben, the way that this game works is you can only ask questions. You cannot respond with statements. We will not give a theme or something. We'll just do general questions. And I'm going to have Bev start. And if you don't answer with a question, then you're out. You ready? Go for it, Pastor Bev. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm good in you? Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, okay, okay, so okay, because, okay. Because, because okay. he hasn't played yet, technically, that's like a statement where all you do is go, okay, and that's yeah. a question, but it has to be like a question. So not you're not out yet because you're new at this. So let's right? try again. Try Practice again. grace in the house of God. Again. Okay. Okay, so how are you, Ben? How are you, Ben? Why am I good? <laughs> you know, why am I doing good? Are you asking me about the condition of your life? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you go, you go be seated. You go be seated. I think we can play this game for another 20 minutes and Ben will not get it. <laughs> go play this game over lunch today because here's the thing. When a question is asked, the answer is the thing we want to give. That's human nature. And yet in the Gospels, whenever Jesus is asked a question, more often than not, Jesus responds with another question. And then the people act like Ben. They're like, uh, ah. Because Jesus responds to questions with questions to help us dig deeper into understanding ourselves. Jesus asks questions to, inspires, to inspire his years, to inspire us to think about our priorities, our values, our hopes, our fears, and to focus our lives. Jesus teaches with questions and questions that help the listeners wrestle with big ideas and to think critically about how they are thinking, what they are doing, and what they are saying. And so for now, until Easter, for the next 13 weeks, we will be in the Gospel of Mark and we will, uh, we will sit with the questions that Jesus asks in the Gospel of Mark. Mark invites us to linger with these questions and to give them a longer hearing or perhaps the space to grow and take a hold of us. So you're ready for a Markan education? Through the form of questions, here we go. Just a few highlights about the Gospel of Mark since we will be in Mark for a number of weeks. Mark is the earliest gospel that was written. And in fact, Mark's importance is this, that... Um, Mark is the primary source for Matthew and Luke. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, 90% of Mark is in the Gospel of Matthew, and two-thirds, about 60% of Mark is found in Luke. Now, Mark, the Gospel of Mark is surprising in what it does not include in its story of Jesus. It does not contain a birth story. 
Mark starts with Jesus as an adult getting baptized by John the baptizer. It does not include familiar teachings like the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer, well-known parables like the parable of the lost son, uh, the Good Samaritan. It does not include that. And in fact, the Gospel of Mark does not include any appearances by Jesus to his followers post-resurrection. In fact, the Gospel of Mark ends with the, the, the tomb of Jesus empty. And then later communities added the last few verses It is an interesting and powerful book. We know from uh, studying the Gospel of Mark that the communities uh, or community and communities in which and for which this was written uh, were included both Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles. And the historical context is fascinating because the Gospel of Mark was written around the time of 70, about 70 and that was when we had the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Roman Empire. And there was a Jewish revolt. In fact, uh, there were 130 years of Jewish revolts. And in 66, the year 66, there were a new Jewish revolts of the Jewish people against the Roman Empire. And so the destruction of Jerusalem it, it plays a background here. And we know that Rome ruled through violence and always the threat of violence, hence crucifixions, right? But more than just their politics of violence, there was also their theology. The Roman Empire had Roman theology. In fact, the titles we use for Jesus, Son of God, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, was first used for Caesar Augustus, who, according to Roman ideology and theology, was the Son of God, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. The difference is that he would bring peace through violence. And so the gospel authors use the language and theology that's used for Rome and they assume it and now use it for Jesus and say, no, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the King of Kings. Jesus is the Lord of Lords. But he brings peace through, uh, justice through peace. That is the context of the Gospel of Mark. And geographically speaking, here's a map of where the Gospel of Mark takes place. Mark takes place in three steps. It takes place in the north, northern part in Galilee for the first eight chapters or so. And then we have Jesus on the way to the south, to Jerusalem. And so Mark can be divided in these three parts. The Galilean ministry that Jesus has, Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, and then Jesus in Jerusalem for the Passion Week. Here's an interesting outline of the Gospel of Mark, this next chart. There, at the very heart of the way that the Gospel author Mark put his Gospel together, Mark chapter 8, we have this question, question mark. Mark is lots of questioning. And the very heart of the 16 chapters of the Gospel of Mark is this question by Jesus, who do people say I am? And then the people respond to that, and then Jesus says, but who do you say I am? We'll get back to this question in a number of weeks when we study this passage, this question for our sermon series. But you can see the Galilean ministry, the first eight chapters is Jesus in Galilee, and after a few miracles and healings, Jesus' popularity grows, and also confrontation with Jesus grows. And Jesus heals and heals and says things and confrontation just builds this momentum until we get to chapter 8 where Jesus says, who do people say I am? 
And then Jesus turns that question around. For eight chapters, Mark is bringing us along. Who do people say Jesus is? Who do people Jesus says? He heals, he exercises demons, all these kind of things. Who do people? And now at chapter eight, Mark pivots the gospel. As Jesus pivots on the way to the cross, the question is now turned back to us. Who do you say I am? And for the next eight chapters, that is the question that confronts the reader. Who do people say I am? No, who do you say I am? This is the background to the entire book of the Gospel of Mark. If we look at the story for today of the paralytic who is brought through the roof and healed, the immediate context is Mark chapter 1 through 3. And we see that Mark begins his gospel like this. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight his paths. The words that stand out here is good news, your way, the way of the Lord, paths. We see in the Gospel of Mark that the way of Jesus is the very central theme here, along with the kingdom of God. The way and following is Mark's central theme. To follow Jesus is to follow him on the way that leads to Jerusalem. Not just geographically, but spiritually. The place of confrontation with the authorities, with death, and with resurrection. And so for Mark, this is the way that Jesus, the way is the way that Jesus embodied and called his followers to be. And then we see in verse 14, after Jesus is baptized, Jesus starts his Galilean ministry. And it says, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news. There it is again, the good news of God saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe in the good news. So the theme of the way is central and then the kingdom has drawn near is the next theme that is central to the gospel of Mark. And the kingdom of God for Mark is God's dream on earth. And God's dream for earth and its people is justice and peace. Then we get to chapter 2. And the interesting uh, outline here of the conflict story. So Jesus begins his Galilean ministry. And now we have a series of conflict stories. Uh, after Jesus healed a number of people, there was no conflict. People accepted that. And we'll see in a second why that happens. But now we have a series of conflict stories. And it's interesting in the way that Mark puts these conflict stories together. It is like a burger bun. At the very top, you have a story about healing. And in chapter 3, you have a story about healing. And then, like, the lettuce in between, or, well, I guess you put lettuce in burgers. But, yeah. The lettuce in between is a story about a meal and later down a meal. And at the very heart is the question, a story about fasting. And so we see that Mark puts together chapter 2 all the way through 3 in a very specific way to highlight these conflicts that Jesus has. And we see in this outline that there's a rising opposition to Jesus and it gets progressively more intense. First, in, in, in the first story, Jesus' opponents that we're going to study now question Jesus silently. They don't speak out loud. They do it silently. And then in the next story, the, the religious leaders question 
Jesus' disciples about him. So from silently to asking Jesus' disciples. And then their question is about Jesus' disciples' behavior. <laughs> and then next, they seek for a legal reason to condemn Jesus. And by the end of this conflict series, they plot to murder Jesus. Things escalate very quickly. So this is all the background to the Gospel of Mark and the first few chapters and the chapter that we find ourselves in now. You can say to your neighbor, you've been marked. Yeah. Here we go. This story has captivated artists, and I want to share with you uh, six pictures, just random pictures that I found, that, that uh, artwork that I like of the story. The first one uh, is more like a cartoon kind of thing that we would find in Bible stories and things like that. What I love about this is there's no crowd or anything here, and you see the paralytic from Jesus' perspective, and the friends who, who bring him down on what seems to be wood, not a mat, <laughs> and he comes down, and you see that. The next image, we see the crowd again is not... Um, uh, present, and, but it's this beautiful picture that has these men uh, kind of uh, holding, holding the mat with ropes, and you can see the effort that they're putting in it, but there's light. Uh, it is light, and it's, it's glorious, and you see Jesus looking down at the man. The next picture uh, we see is a, a black and white one, and what is interesting about this one is just how the artist put this together with Jesus and the paralytic are clearly the central focus, and the crowd kind of disappears in it. The next one we see, <laughs> I, I put this one in because I like it, because this kind of looks like a 17th or 18th century lounge or, or home or something like that. Uh, it clearly is not a, a, a New Testament home, and uh, the, the person is kind of hanging there is like it's a big swing. Um, but anyways, next, the next picture, uh, I like this one particularly because I'm not a brilliant artist and I struggle to draw realistically. <laughs> And so you could see they didn't even care to put a, a hole through the roof. They're standing on this, this weird kind of thing, and that's a full bed. That's probably from the 18th century, something like that. Very interesting. And then the last one is my favorite one because I'm from Africa. This African picture of Jesus um, healing the paralytic. And you just see the joy in everybody's faces. A joy like only our African people can do. It's so beautiful. And so these are some of the pictures that people have drawn to portray this dramatic story. And today I want to share with you four pictures um, for kind of my take as I look at this story. Four pictures I'm going to share with you. At the very heart of this story is this question. The first question we find in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus asks. Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and take your mat and walk? And so here we get one question, three questions in one, essentially. The people bring the paralytic, they bring him down, and then Jesus pronounces forgiveness, and the scribes in their hearts wonder. And they say, it's interesting, the, the Greek that says, who's this fellow? <laughs> This is not a Messiah or a prophet or anybody. Who's this fellow that he would pronounce forgiveness? And Jesus, knowing what's in their hearts, the first question is a question about what is in our heart. It is a question about God. 
Does God work within the confines of religious convention? Or does God work wherever, however, and with whoever he wants? And so this first picture is a picture of God. And this is the point. Whatever it takes to care for people is permissible and required. The scribe's question is, could Jesus announce forgiveness? Their question was about authority. And another way to phrase Jesus' question back to them, why do you raise such a question in your heart, is what kind of God do you serve? Do you serve a God who forgives and delights in forgiveness? Or do you serve a God who withholds forgiveness? Now, the religious teachers of the day had already concluded that God does not easily forget, forgive. Even if God does forgive, they would say, forgiveness happens in Jerusalem, not in Capernaum. Even if forgiveness happens, forgiveness must be given at the temple, not at the home. Even if forgiveness happens, forgiveness must be based on a sacrifice, not on a word. Jesus, by declaring this man forgiven, was undermining the authority of the priests and of the temple. And this is why it was blasphemous to them. By the way, Jesus had already performed many miracles in chapter 1. But there was no confrontation and no questions of Jesus being a blasphemer. But as soon as Jesus pronounces forgiveness in hand in hand with healing, all of a sudden Jesus becomes the blasphemer. And so their question is a question of authority. Can Jesus forgive sins? But more pointedly, this is also a question of who would God forgive? Would God forgive such a person as this paralyzed man? The issue is whom will God forgive and under what conditions will God forgive? In their minds, God could not forgive the paralyzed man because in Jesus' time, the Jews of the day believed that there was a connection between sickness and sin. If a person's body was not whole, either that person themselves or if it was a birth defect, their parents had sinned. And then, of course, such a person very readily becomes socially ostracized, not only because of Levitical purity laws, but also because the assumption of the people were that God could not forgive them because of their sin. And of course, the doors to full participation in the life of the synagogue and normal society was closed to such a person whose body was sick and ill. And so in Jesus' day, and perhaps more subtly so in our day, Religion proclaimed that human suffering was a consequence of human failure. And so Jesus challenges their picture of God by not only giving physical healing to this man, but spiritual healing. Jesus proclaims restoration and forgiveness. Jesus calls this man son. He said, son. He breaks the social barriers that normalize disabled, that normally isolate disabled people. And this, some scholars say, is in fact the real miracle of this story. That while the man is still paralyzed, while his sins are still unforgiven, Jesus draws nears to this man and brings him back into full honored participation in God's 
kingdom, but also in the social spheres. Jesus says, you belong and you are beloved. The question that describes us is a question about constraints. The question that Jesus asks and responds is a question about expansion. And so in this interaction with the paralytic, Jesus showed what this new moment of the kingdom of God looked like that Jesus is introducing in the very first question here. This is the kind of kingdom that he announced where hospitality and healing of the outsider was central. Whatever it takes to care for people is permissible and required. The, the question Jesus asked quite literally shows that God works to dig up the institutions and obstacles that stand in the way of people being made whole. God does not operate within the confines of religion alone. And we see the scribes in our passage, they represent those who have ready answers, like Pastor Ben in our question game. The scribes have ready answers. Those who base their faith and their trust in God with easy, ready-made, prepackaged theological answers. This is the way God works. But Jesus deconstructed this picture of God and challenged them to remain open to the new and the unexpected moment of the kingdom. Jesus had come to create a community of faith where the content of one's character and the reality of one's faith rather than the condition of one's body was what determined one's status among God's people. And so the essence of this first question is this. What is your picture of God? Jesus asks, is your picture of God boxed by religious convention? Or does your picture of God allow for you to follow Jesus outside the conventions of rules and restrictions? Mark makes it clear in this first picture I have of this story, whatever it takes to care for people is permissible and required. Three more quick pictures here. The second picture I have of this story is the picture of others. The intrusion of the other does not disrupt the work of God, but rather gives new opportunities to proclaim it. Yes, that's an amen right there. By the way, many scholars think that this was Jesus' roof that was being torn open. It doesn't really say whose house it was. It says Jesus was home. Some believe that it would have been Peter's house because Peter, uh, Jesus was at Peter's house earlier doing healings there. But many believe it was Jesus' house whether it's Peter's house or Jesus' house, it was home. And so you have someone intruding into Jesus' home. But this intrusion is not unsettling to Jesus because the kingdom of God is about breaking open and expanding. This interruption is precisely the point of the gospel. You know, there was a growing sense uh, of the impact made by Jesus' uh, ministry. And then this radical message of the kingdom of God will warrant ripping open the roofs of all the places and institutions where we can see that people matter most. Mark represents a picture of hospitality. Jesus opened his home and allowed his home to be ripped open to friends and strangers alike so he can live and discuss the kingdom of God. 
The intrusion of the other does not disrupt the work of God, but rather gives new opportunity to proclaim it. Jesus welcomed all regardless of their social status, racial background, or immoral, so-called immoral past. Somebody says of this story, Jesus is below us, not above us in this picture. In fact, most of the people Jesus healed in the Gospel of Mark belong to categories of the outsiders. You'll remember and we will see the story of Jesus healing blind Bartimaeus. Blind. Jesus healed many who were lame, the lepers, a woman who bled profusely, a woman who was crippled. Jesus didn't just give them restoration of their physical uh, disabilities and diseases, but he reconstituted those people as people who belong to God. And so the Gospel of Mark in this first question makes it very clear. The intrusion of the other does not disrupt the kingdom of God, but rather it gives it new new opportunities to proclaim it. Two more pictures. The third picture of this is a picture of faith. Mark says through this story that perseverance is the heart of faith. It is interesting, whenever the word faith, pistis, is mentioned in the Gospel of Mark in conjunction with uh, miracles, it almost always, in the Gospel of Mark in the Greek, implies perseverance, overcoming obstacles in order to get to Jesus. And so in our story of the four people helping the paralytic man, we see that there are obstacles of this man's inability to walk, the crowd blocking the way to Jesus, the roof blocking access to Jesus. In spite of all these obstacles, these four people, we could call them friends. It doesn't necessarily say they're friends, but we would assume that these four people are persistent and resourceful enough to bring this paralyzed man to Jesus. The first mention of the word faith here in 2 verse 5 links the word faith with acting rather than knowing. We don't know the beliefs of these four friends who brought the paralytic, but they take action. They take action. And so we see that Mark says perseverance is the heart of faith. The picture you see here on the screen is of four climbers. In the middle is uh, Nirmal Purja. He's a Nepalese climber um, and three other uh, uh, Sherpas from Nepal. We know that Sherpas are the ones who help uh, Westerners climb these massive mountains and they often don't get the accolades that they deserve. And so this Sherpa, Nirman uh, Purja, actually he wasn't a, uh, he was a climber, he was not a uh, Sherpa, but he was Nepalese. And he decided he's going to bring a group of Nepalese together and to break a world record. And they summited all 14 of the world's 8,000 meter mountains in just seven months. You can watch this. I watched the, the, the film. It's called 14 Peaks on Netflix. Incredible story. The, 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 last, the, the, the last record was something like many years that it took to climb 14 peaks. And as you know, it, it is a huge endeavor to climb just Mount Tubid, never mind 8,000 feet, right? But he did it in seven months. And so something that happened, and this picture was taken 
after Purja decided that he's going to help one of their friends, on the, uh, one of the climbers on the mountain. Because here's what happens. You prepare for many years to climb, to climb these mountains. And when you get up there, you are part of a team. But because the conditions are so difficult, if somebody runs out of oxygen or is in trouble, more often than not, the team will leave you on the mountain. And in the climbing community, this is, this is accepted. And it is a sad reality of trying to do these things. And Perjani's team had just summited 48 hours earlier one of these massive peaks. I think it was, I forget which one it was. And now they came to Annapurna. And they just came back down from Annapurna. So this is their second 8,000 climb within 48 hours. And they they found uh, somebody who who was dying. They came down all the way and they decided that they're gonna go back to get their friend, even though they put their own life at risk. There was many people at the base camp and these four Sherpas, Nepalese climbers, decided that they will go back to save their friend, even their friend, the stranger, they will save him, even though it appeared that there was no hope. And thankfully they saved him. Because they had this strong belief that every person matters. Every person matters. And faith was demonstrated through perseverance. And so that's the third picture I have of this story. Perseverance is at the heart of faith. Four people in this story dared to do the difficult, the dangerous, and the controversial in order to bring their friend to Jesus and give healing. And lastly, The fourth picture that I have of this story about this question is a picture of healing. Healing and restoration is the work of the kingdom of God. Three times in our text, we find these three-part actions mentioned in verse 9, verse 11, and 12. And look at them over here. In verse 9, Jesus, it says, rise up, take your mat, and walk. On verse 9, if you go to the next slide, Nathan. Rise up, take your mat, and walk. And then in verse 11, it says, rise up, take your mat, and go to your home. And then verse 12, it says, rise up, take your mat, and go out before all. And so the interesting thing is that Mark, as he tells the story, changes the last part every single time. And it's a little bit of a surprise because it says, rise up, take up your mat, and walk the first one. And then you would expect the hearers to have Jesus say, and so he rose up, took his mat, and walked. But no, Mark changes it. It goes from rise up, take your mat, and walk, and now it says, go to your home. And this is surprising because now there's a restoration of relationship. Because the paralytic was uh, ostracized from society in his own family. And so the expected is rise up, take your mat and walk. And now it's rise up, take your mat and go home. You belong, you are beloved, you are included. And then we would think the third time it would be the same. So he rose up, he took his mat and he went home. But the author of Mark has something to tell us here. And that is that he rose up. He took his mat and he went out before all. And this is surprising again. 
Because healing and restoration is the work of the kingdom of God. And this paralytic and his friends now become a parable of the kingdom of God. He does not only receive healing, rise up your mat and walk. He does not only receive restoration, rise up, take your mat and go home. But he now becomes a witness to the power of healing and restoration. Rise up, take your mat and go out before all. And we see that the response is that everybody was amazed. The last picture of this story is that healing and restoration is the work of the kingdom of God. So, this first question in the gospel of Mark is a question about who God is and who God includes. It is a picture of a God that will do whatever it takes to care for people. It's a picture of God who will embrace the other. It's a picture of God who invites us into a faith that perseveres. It's a picture of a God who, whose work is healing and restoration of the body and the soul and invites us into it. At its root, this first question is a question about the authority to control or the authority to care. And I love this summary of the story of Jesus and the paralytic by William Loder. When we own the authority to care, we will help release people from their paralysis. We will be unfazed by the interruption of human need. We will cut through the restrictive ecclesiastical bureaucracy because we have discovered that authority is really about authenticity and being open to the breaking through of God's reign in our lives. Open the roof. So Jesus confronts us, you and me, with a question. What questions do we have in our hearts? It's a question that is an open invitation to follow Jesus on the way. May we, church, be like the paralytic friends and start to dig up roofs that keep out those who want to find God. May we find those institutions and obstacles Wherever, in, whether it's inside the world or outside the, uh, inside the walls of the church or outside the world, may we find them and seek to keep people out and dig holes through those obstacles. May we, church, be like Jesus and accept the unwelcome strangers into our lives and find ways to be true healers. May we be open to the new moments of the kingdom that God uh, cannot be contained by walls, codes, and institutions. May we be like the paralytic whose deep faith not only opened up him up to great risk of seeking Jesus, but sought to be made whole through the lively encounter of Christ. May we be like the scribes who care deeply about their tradition, yet may we reject traditionalism, realizing that God brings the new through the intrusion of the other. May we also be like the confused majority and be open to and recognize this kingdom announcement when it happens. 
May we seek to be the question rather than the answer, open to whatever God's work is for today. And then may we, with hope and confidence, say, we have never seen anything like this. Amen.